what does empowerment look like? The most beautiful thing about virtual worlds is when it gives you an opportunity to do something you cannot do in real life. There's no definition for real life that includes leading a 60 person raid of everybody wearing their own LGBTQ flag to fight this huge dragon. This this was an experience I had in Final Fantasy 14 during Pride Month last year, and it was so beautiful. Hello world, this is SpartyCast. Hello and welcome to SpartyCast, brought to you by the Social and Psychological Research on Technology Interaction Effects Lab, the Sparty Lab. I'm Robbie Rutan, Director of the Lab here at Michigan State University, and this is episode number 24. The 24th element, chromium, is highly resistant to corrosion, and that is extremely appropriate because our guest today, Cecilia D'Anastasio, a wired journalist who focuses on video games, to me is one of the most corrosion resistant uh, writers I know. She is very well versed in the ethics of journalism. She understands um, aspects of covering stories and dealing with sources and, uh, and explaining topics in ways that are really cognizant of their social impacts. And that's one of the reasons I think we've collaborated on a few stories. I, I've been interviewed by her for stories and we did some research together. We collected data around the Black Lives Matter um, movement relating to toxicity in video games and, and found some relationships there. We, we wrote a short article on that. I like this episode because we not only talk about her topics that of course relate to mine, video game effects, socialization in, in virtual worlds, avatars, the metaverse, um, but we also talk a little bit about the relationship between journalism and academia. And it's been great for me to see how journalism operates in, it's, it's not the same as writing journal articles as an academic. We write research articles, they're peer reviewed, they take months, if not years, to get out from the time of data collection. Journalists are turning this stuff around within weeks, um, it seems to me, maybe months if it's a very large story. And there, there are trade-offs, right? We have to be very careful as academics with our data, with our sampling, with our uh, methodology in general, with the inferences that we draw. Journalists don't have that luxury to spend that time, but they do have to, they're the beholden to the public record just like we are as academics. And so um, to me, it's harrowing, but it's also exciting because it's a public voice. That's why I'm doing this podcast in the first place to, to increase the impact of the research and the technological thinking that we do um, in, in the lab, in our research. And so learning from journalists is important, I think for me, certainly as, as a scholar, but I think for many of us in many of our academic fields. That's why I asked Cecilia to join us today. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's somewhat short. Um, her time is very short. So I'm grateful to her that, that she carved out that time and spent it with me. And I hope you enjoy it as well. I am so thrilled to be here with you. Cecilia, thank you for joining SpartyCast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So we've known each other for a few years now. I think we connected when you were uh, writing for Kotaku. Mm-hmm. Um, and before that, you were at Vice. 
I was a freelancer for Vice. Oh, yes. I see. Got it. And Kotaku, uh, not freelance. You were uh, employed there, and now you're employed at Wired. Correct. Yeah. Awesome. And is it you were the first games writer at Wired? No, 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 no. Wired oh. has a long history of working with amazing games writers, um, Jason Schreier, Julie Munsey, Chris Kohler. So I'm coming in at the tail end of their legacy to cover games here. Got it. Then is it, I thought there was some superlative that I remembered. You, were, you weren't the only games writer, were you? Uh, I, I think I am the only full-time person at Wired exclusively dedicated to games. Okay, that's yes. it. That's it. <laughs> the games writer. Uh, not the first, but the, the current. Um, and you've covered many interesting topics. More recently, some, some topics that relate to my interest in the metaverse, uh, such as Fortnite as today's, uh, one of today's third places. Uh, maybe I'll ask you to, to tell me a little bit about that one. But way back years ago with Vice talking about people using avatars for self-expression. Um, so my first question is, how, do you, how did you choose these topics? How did you come to write on uh, video games and, and avatars in particular? Yeah, thank you for asking me that. Um, I am not somebody who came into games journalism through sort of traditional venues. Um, I'm not a reviewer. I've never really been much of a games critic. Um, I don't have like the most interesting opinion on the upcoming Zelda game. I'm somebody who personally really kind of came into her own through online games, um, through competing in them, through um, expressing myself in MMOs, that's always been a very important part of my life. And as I um, was beginning my career in journalism, I just really was interested in exploring the ways that other people and particularly marginalized people kind of self-actualized through video games. Video games are, in my view, an incubator for mainstream culture. And a lot of phenomena happen through video games, good phenomena, bad phenomena, um, first before they're sort of appropriated um, by sort of other larger, more well-known communities, often well-moneyed communities. And starting out, I really just was interested in exploring the human psyche through um, online games, which is something that we hear a lot about now with talk through the metaverse. Yeah. So um, do you remember what maybe one of your first pieces you wrote focused on? First pieces I wrote, uh, I was really obsessed with Second Life back then, which I know is like, like I played Second Life when I was much, much younger, but I returned to it as a journalist um, to cover the ways in which people could be themselves through Second Life in ways that they did not feel empowered to in real life. So I wrote an article about people who transitioned genders based on experiences they had in other bodied avatars in Second Life. Sure, yeah. So that that example is in many ways, I think, a quintessential piece of support for the the value and the power that virtual worlds have. We we might have over uh, overvalued the potential for Second Life to be like the coming of the next internet in the year two thousand six or whatever. A little bit, yeah, just a little bit. But for <laughs> those people um, who really wanted an experience that was very difficult to have in IRL. Um, it, it seemed to be transformative, um, kind of literally in this context. Uh, totally. You, this idea of identity exploration, 
you, you've talked about it in terms of gender. Are there other areas where you think identity exploration is very prominent through avatars? Yeah, I think video games provide a really unique way to kind of explore capitalism's impact on our psychologies. So one article I wrote um, back when I was freelancing for Vice was about the ways in which people would act out their day jobs through video games in their free time. So I interviewed several truckers who, when they would get home from weeks long stints on the road would go and play like American Truck Simulator. And I interviewed city planners who wanted to play SimCity. And it was really interesting. Maybe this isn't quite an answer to the question about avatars, but um, I think it does say something about the way people kind of project themselves onto digital characters. I think it's really interesting that people wanted to play out very streamlined, kind of easy versions of their job where there were concrete uh, measures for success and concrete measures for failure. And they could kind of just watch themselves like get better and scale up um, in a way that is not really rep replicable in real life. Yeah, this is, I, I've heard that example with soldiers uh, when they're mm -hmm. not out in the battlefield, they're playing shooter games. Um, and you can think of it as training, but the way you just framed it, I think makes a lot of sense also in terms of uncertainty reduction, makes you a little bit less anxious about the, the task, the job, when, when it's in a game. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. I think, you know, I would be really interested to see what a game would look like that does um, echo people's passion for their particular jobs, but doesn't incentivize the sort of like growth obsession and optimization obsession that we do see in a lot of simulation games. I would be really interested to see what some games would look like that really capitalize on like how much we love the creativity aspect of a certain job or the social aspect of a certain job. I'm really excited about the recent rise of social gaming for that reason, because we're able to kind of like play out these social dynamics, distilled versions of these social dynamics through mechanics in a way that people were previously playing through like kind of like capitalist inspired work dynamics or even sort of like military industrial complex dynamics through video games. So do you mean something like Roblox, where there's literally a, a simulation of <laughs> these social scenarios and then they can be tweaked in ways that are maybe less capitalist or is that is it a type of, I mean, or Roblox where you can recruit extremists uh, <laughs> as you've written about? Yeah, we can totally talk about that. I think Roblox provides a platform for people to do really anything. So I'm mostly talking about a game like Among Us, for example that allows people to kind of play out like, you know, deception and like, uh, all, and you know, allyship and things like that um, through mechanics that are already in place. Roblox is kind of a blank canvas in a lot of ways. And people do do that in a lot of Roblox games as well. So what's your prognosis? You, you clearly understand a lot about what's happening right now and what's happened in the recent past. 10 years from now, what types of games and, and, um, and avatar use experiences, maybe outside of games, do you, do you predict? I don't think that a metaverse will happen the way that um, tech CEOs are talking about it. Um, I don't know if that's what you were getting at with the question, but- Very interesting, no, go ahead. The, the last decade of the internet has been defined by consolidation and just like 
um, big tech business practices, like incentivize, you know, selling, like acquiring and selling data and funneling people to like specific user experiences on specific social media websites. Um, we're visiting fewer of these websites and we're engaging with them in, in more and more similar ways. And the idea that any sort of avatar, any sort of projection of ourselves could feel liberated in a world dominated by these like exacerbated versions of Facebook, exacerbated versions of, you know, even like Pokemon Go, which collects like location data. Like it's, it's really challenging for me to imagine what empowerment looks like in, in that world. So that's a critique of the potential for empowerment. What's your critique of the vision of the metaverse? Mm. I, so are you saying that the CEOs are touting the metaverse as an empowering place and you're not optimistic about that? Or is there uh, more of a fundamental, like technological concern you have about people being able to actually connect with each other in this singular universe of virtual worlds? Yeah, I think both. Like, it's really hard for me to imagine, um, you know, tacking World of Warcraft onto Fortnite or me being able to move my virtual avatar from between Final Fantasy XIV, a game I really love, to, um, I don't know, like League of Legends or something like that. Like, I just cannot imagine these companies in being incentivized to collaborate in that way at all, especially when it includes you know, social media companies. I also like, I don't, I'm not really excited about a world where I can like buy mascara and then it appears on my avatar in like a 3D Oculus Facebook work meeting. Like that's not what I want out of my virtual experiences. You know, like consumption is not the first thing I think about when I think about like empowerment in a virtual world. And that's like how the internet is, you know, kind of monetized right now. I see. So what does empowerment look like? I think the most beautiful thing about virtual worlds is when it gives you an opportunity to do something you cannot do in real life. And real life, you know, we could argue about the definition of that for a long time, but there is no definition for real life that includes leading a 60 person raid of everybody wearing their own LGBTQ flag, um, to fight this huge dragon. Like, you know, I, this, this was an experience I had in Final Fantasy 14 during Pride Month last year, and it was so beautiful. And you know that there were people in that raid who like might not have gone to Pride, might not have worn those flags in real life for a variety of reasons. It's great that you, you have these emotional experiences um, that transcend real world, virtual world, right? It's, it's about kind of the, the intersubjective reality, the things we all believe to be real and that makes them real, regardless of whether they're digital or, or physical. Generally speaking though, like I'm really interested in what anonymity is going to look like in, in the future of, of these virtual worlds is part of what empowers people to really be themselves and explore their identities is this separation from so-called real life. Yeah. And um, back when I started playing MMOs, it was a it was a faux pas to ask anyone anything about their real life. Now people are connecting over Discord. They're connecting over Instagram and over Twitter. And it's you know, there aren't the same barriers that there were before. So I wonder if that's going to make people feel less uh, empowered to, to kind of try things out or express themselves. 
Has this shift in the norms around privacy and anonymity influenced the way that you conduct journalism in virtual worlds? I think about like ethics of virtual worlds reporting like so, so, so much. This is something I'm really passionate about. And it's really interesting because way back in the day when journalists were parachuting into games like Second Life and being like, oh my God, there's all this wild stuff. There was no consideration for like asking people to be on the record asking people like, what are your pronouns? Like, how can I identify you in this article? Like it was, it was really exploitative. And I think it's very important for us in our virtual worlds reporting to consider that there is a person on the other side of that avatar and um, to respect that if they take you to their home in Final Fantasy 14, that is their home. And you want your avatar to be like, dressed appropriately. You want to like behave the way that they expect you to behave. Um, just like if you are a journalist interviewing them in their home in real life. So when it comes to privacy, to answer your question, um, I think people in virtual worlds deserve the same um, or, or about the same considerations around privacy that, that people do in real life because it's just an extension of who they are. It's just a different place where they are. Sure. But as you noted, um, there's a shift maybe away from the anonymity that we previously relied on in virtual worlds. So do you think the norms will change? Will people expect that they're no longer anonymous because I'm using the same avatar? Like presumably, let's say it, it works. I can take my Final Fantasy avatar with me into Fortnite or Minecraft <laughs> or my business meeting. I probably wouldn't wear, wear the same avatar, but maybe it's the same face but it's got different garb and of course the items don't work because it's not in the same place but if it's if it's got the same name and face do I expect that my reputation uh goes with me and then here's a hypothesis because of that there's a, a might be a decreased sense of anonymity that reduces toxicity because people might feel like they're more accountable for their behaviors what do you think of that hypothesis I think it's a really cool hypothesis. I also would love to see how it plays out in a world where game designers factor in like moderation and anti-toxicity measures before they design their games. Um, we're not seeing that happen at the scale that it should be happening currently. So it's hard to forecast what that will look like in the future. I feel like some people are doing a really good job at like IP banning people and um, really making sure people don't return to their services after they've violated community guidelines. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a big question. How would yeah. reputation carry over? Like- We're not quite there yet. So it's, yeah, it's very abstract. Yeah, it's really abstract. I think it's a really cool question though. Um, Maybe we can explore it together someday in the future. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, I also, let's, let's shift uh, because I, I think one of the coolest things about our professional relationship is in a way I'm, I've been inspired by you to learn a little <laughs> bit about journalism, right? Like we, and, and we've worked together on a research project. We collected data, we did a survey. So um, I, I think of myself a little bit as an academic who's dabbling in journalism. That's, that's what this podcast is. Um, and, and you certainly understand research and spend time thinking about it, though that's not exactly your profession. So we, we both dabble across this aisle, um, but what, what are some lessons you've learned about the best ways to collaborate between um, journalism and academic research? 
um, get somebody as smart and generous with their time as you to work with them. I mean, it's been so amazing, like getting to know your research practices and um, really like being uh, so close to the methods uh, you use, which are like so thorough and so exhaustive. It's like awesome. It's so cool. I think one thing that journalists can learn from academics, generally speaking, is um, to kind of make sure that you are adequately representing the community um, you're sampling from when it comes to information. That's very important um, because journalists have the ability to, I don't want to say create truth, but um, really kind of imply truth or frame frame, uh, frame facts frame, in ways that make yes. them appear more or less true or more or less positive yeah yeah i think we should be really careful with our readers trust um in terms of what advice i can give to academics like tell us about stuff like i always get so sad when i see a really dope paper that came out like three months ago i didn't hear about it it's like totally on my beat and while it's on me to be on top of everything in that regard i really wish that um academics like reached out to journalists more to talk about all of the cool work they're doing like i promise you we're excited about it and the worst thing that's going to happen is us being like us not responding or being like, sorry, like really busy right now, or this isn't my beat. Yeah. I just wish people talk to us more. That's great advice. And we do have academics who listen, PhD students, maybe some of my uh, colleagues. And so if you're writing about games research, send Cecilia uh, <laughs> a note when you get something published, maybe she can write about it. Um, it's been a really amazing, it's just fun. Like, especially post-tenure, when I'm, I'm thinking about impact beyond just writing papers for the ivory tower to read maybe two or three people in my niche field. Uh, <laughs> the idea that maybe hundreds or thousands of people might see something that, that I helped contribute to, it's, it's empowering. I mean, speaking of empowerment, right? Like it's, it's part of your legacy. Yeah, absolutely. Like you guys are the ones who have these um, actual truth-making uh, methodologies. That's why you go to school for so long. And But nobody um, hears about it unless we work with people like you who have an audience and know how to, how to package the information. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think we're all contributing to a public knowledge base and um, we could talk about epistemology forever, but... I, our journalist work and academics work can kind of hold equal weight in the public eye. And I really, really think that journalists have a lot to learn from academics in terms of um, being like really, really, really thoughtful about the way that we frame our questions and the way that we um, frame the answers that we get from them. So yeah, we have a lot to learn from each other. Rock on. Well, um, I am so appreciative of our ability for the symbiotic learning experience. <laughs> and also, uh, this is this is pretty cool to, to interview a journalist on my podcast. So thank you, Cecilia. Thank you for your time. I'll, I'll holler again when the metaverse starts to appear. and We can answer that question about anonymity and toxicity and whether it's actually changing. But um, yeah, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you inviting me to this. It's 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 really great. Um, you had awesome questions, and I I learned so much. So thank you so much. Okay, that was our interview with Cecilia D'Anastasio. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
If you like what you heard, please like, follow, subscribe, download, tell your mom, tell your dad, tell your dog, uh, tell anyone who you care about. <laughs> um, our producers are George McNeil and Taylor Halterman, though George is on his way out and the only producer in the future will be Taylor. We are hiring an intern. If you're a student listening to this, hit me up and send me your resume. Maybe you can be a SpartyCast intern. Thank you for listening to SpartyCast. Check us out next time where I will have on the podcast Jorge Pena, a renowned scholar in virtual reality and avatar effects and a pretty cool dude. He's at the University of California, Davis. And we will talk about his research and maybe his rock music. So hope to see you then. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye, world.